Welcome, everybody. Joe Tarnowski with ECRM here. I want to thank you all for joining us. My guest today is Michael Easter, who is a contributing editor for Men's Health Magazine, a columnist with Outside, a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and the author of The Comfort Crisis, which is all about embracing discomfort, uh, the benefits that that brings you, why people tend not to do that, and uh, he also talks about how you can incorporate it into your daily lives. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. And to start off, can you talk a little bit, a little background on why you wrote the book? Yeah, sure. So I was on staff at Men's Health Magazine for a long time. Now I'm a contributing editor. But in that role, you know, I'm writing about all these different things that improve human health and well-being. So everything from fitness to diet to even improving your mental health. And the common thread that you see in all those is that to improve whatever it is you're trying to improve, you usually have to go through discomfort. So I think the, the obvious one that people can easily grasp is uh, exercise, right? It's like, if you want to improve your fitness, which is going to in turn improve your health, you're going to have to exercise and exercise is not comfortable, <laughs> but that also extends to diet and um, all these different things. And um, I also over time noticed that, so you have this thread, right? It's that discomfort leads to good outcomes for people. Um, but I also noticed that we've made the world so unbelievably comfortable in every single way. So if you think about the average person's day, and I can guess if you're, if you're watching this, this probably includes uh, you, every single thing that most impacts your daily experience is a technology that has been invented in the last 100 years. And its job is to make your life easier, less effortful, and more comfortable. Soft beds, temperature control, how much time we spend behind screens, or how hard do you have to work to get food anymore, right? Yep. On yep. and on and on. And so the book, I investigate how all these different forms of discomfort that we've removed from our lives um, have impacted us. And that's uh, the term comfort creep that, that you talked about. Yeah, exactly. So I talk about in the book, um, this idea called comfort creep. And basically, um, the human brain, it, it, it's not evolved to make these, you know, sweeping comparisons in the grand scheme of time and space. So I can't, the average person is not going to look back and be like, man, I have it so good compared to 200 years ago, 2000 years ago, 200,000 years ago, things are great. What we do is we make comparisons to the, to the last most relevant thing that happened to us. So what happens is when you apply this to comfort, um, once a new comfort is introduced, we adapt to it, right? And we're like, that becomes the standard. And so then everything else that came before it, even though it was still, I mean, objectively pretty good, uh, it becomes unacceptable. So you think about this in cars, it's like uh, 20 years ago, right? If your car had Bluetooth, it was like, oh my God, that's amazing, right? Or an airbag. And nowadays it's like, people are like, I need, I need uh, heated seats. I need Bluetooth. I need uh, Apple CarPlay. I need a heated steering wheel. All these things. Not having that is unacceptable. But you know, when, when you apply that to like all these different things that help that uh, improve our health, like movement, right? We've engineered movement out of our days. We've engineered temperature swings. We've we've engineered having to work from our food out of our days. On and on and on. We adapt, and these in turn um, hurt our health progressively more over time. Mm -hmm. 
Now, some of the benefits, and, and what's funny, one thing that you did mention is like, even when we are seeking discomfort, like going to a gym, the gym is air conditioned, it's, it's climate control, it's, you know, you have all of these comfortable seats on there. And, and when, in reality, when just in the past, when we were hunter gatherers, just going about our day to day activities caused a lot, it was a lot of movement, a lot of effort, a lot of time. Yeah. So if you look at um, when they do studies on modern hunter gather gatherers and how much they move, they move about seven times more than us or no, 14 times more than us. They take about 17,000 steps a day. They're also, I mean, they're not sitting around either. Right. And when they are sitting, it's on like the hard ground, they're doing this all outside and the heat and the elements and all these things. So now it's, uh, when you think about it, how that applies to exercise, cause we're on this topic, it's like, we've, we essentially invented exercise in the night, in the early 1900s, when we realized, oh, these new office jobs we have, um, people who have them seem to have more health problems than the people who are still working on the farms. It must be the movement thing. So let's invent this thing called exercise. So we move more and have fewer health problems. And that works to an extent, but we've also like put it in this narrow little 30 minute window that we do every day, where is in the past life was effectively exercise, right? Yep. And we're hardwired evolution wise to seek comfort because in the past, our lives were so uncomfortable. So comfort meant saving energy and, you know, things that were necessary for survival. It just backfires on us now because everything you have, all of this processed food that's so available. And, you know, we have all of these things that, that kind of make us lazy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you explained it um, perfectly. Uh, so anthropologists, their nerdy term for it is an evolutionary mismatch. Mm. It's when, um, you know, we evolve in one environment and we get these adaptations that help us survive in that environment, but then our environment changes. And all of a sudden those adaptations we have, they backfire. So for example, um, you know, in the past, if you had access to really rich calorie dense food, you would want to eat as much of it as possible at the time, because then you could add fat to your frame. And then when the inevitable lean times hit, when we had periods of scarcity, you could pull on that fat and it would help you survive. Right. But now it's like, there's, there's rarely, rarely food scarcity for mm -hmm. most people, you know, but we're still inclined to try and eat in such a way that adds, uh, that makes us gain weight more or less. Yep. Um, and that can lead to health problems and exercise too, right? Like in the past, you didn't want to move any more than you had to, you wanted to avoid all risk at any cost, but you know, for, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, our fear of this innate fear, we have a failure and this, this, uh, tendency we have to avoid risk that used to keep us alive in the past. But now when we think about it from a business perspective and an entrepreneurial perspective, that fear is often what stops us from making the choices we need to, to push our business forward. And, and it seems our threshold for that has gotten lower. So what used to you know, we, we, in the past, we may have had to escape tigers chasing us on a, a kind of regular basis. And that's a real stress. Now, somebody screwing up a PowerPoint presentation, they think that's a real stress. <laughs> right. So that 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 idea of um, sort of comfort creep applies to, yeah, failure. Mm -hmm. As you said, it's like in the past, failure would often mean death, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you failed trying to, you know, go across a pass in the winter or whatever, trying to migrate from point A to point B, uh, if you failed on a hunt, if you failed to find food, um, 
if you took the wrong trail and there's a tiger there, right? Failure equals death. So we really, in our human brain, we hate failure. Mm-hmm. Now, failure rarely ever means death. It is, as you said, you screw up on a PowerPoint, you misspeak in front of your boss, you X, Y, Z, you make a bad investment or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But that doesn't, get, that's never going to kill you, mm-hmm. right? It's like, I, I, had a, I had a friend who, um, he was like, I don't know, man, like that stuff down sounds, is pretty bad though. And I'm like, yeah, but like, think about it. If I took everything away from you right now, like, what would you do? Like he had a good business and family yeah. and he's like, I don't know. I was like, well, would you die? He's like, well, no. I'm like, you'd have like a big safety, a social safety net and you could draw on that and then you could just kind of rebuild. Like mm-hmm. you're going to be fine, right? So this like fear of these things, it's really what it's doing is keeping you from taking the next step that can often improve your life. Yep. One of my biggest takeaways from the book was the fact that we are far more capable than we typically think we are. And, and so I wanted to get into the concept of Misogi because that kind of brings that out. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that concept and, and how it can be used? Yeah. Yeah. So in the book, I mean, I identify like a handful of discomforts that um, are really good for us that we've removed from our lives. And one of them is this idea of um, taking on big challenges in nature. So I meet this guy whose name is Marcus Elliott, and he is, there's basically two things you need to know about him. The first is that he's a seeker, right? So he used to go to Burning Man all the time, like way back in the day, lived out of a VW van, counted cards to get himself through college. Uh, But the second thing is that he's brilliant. So he has an MD from Harvard. He decides he doesn't want to be a doctor, decides he's going to revolutionize sports science. Uh, which is kind of a, a goal that's almost arrogant and how grand it is, right? Yep. Uh, hey, but but that, end- that's how great things happen. <laughs> exactly. And he ends up doing it. So he has uh, these facilities that are called P3. There's two of them. And they have uh, contracts with the NBA, the NFL, all these different leagues. Like every incoming rookie in the NBA has to go through their system um, because they're applying essentially uh, big data, biometrics, AI, all this stuff to human movement so they can predict injury risk. They can also see um, maybe some aspect of a player that they didn't realize they had this um, skill that they can lean into. Uh, So, you know, I told you that to basically tell you that he's all about numbers and data and figures and stuff like that. But he also realizes that what improves human performance, it can't always be measured. And so to get to that, you know, the idea of like, why is it that there are some people at the end of the game that you just go give that person the ball because they've got something psychological on board, right? So to get to that, he does this thing called Masogi. And the idea is that you are going to go out into nature and you are going to take on one really epic task every year. And there are two rules. The first is that uh, it has to be really hard. So he defines that by saying you should have a 50-50 shot of finishing it. The second is that you can't die. And that's just kind of a fun way of saying, you know, be safe. Don't be an idiot. Uh, But the idea is that, as we were kind of talking about before, is that in the past, we used to have to do these hard, challenging things all the time. It's part of our lives in nature. And failure would often mean death. But when we took these things on, every single time we'd complete something, we would realize what we were capable of, what our potential was. Right. So we grow as humans. Uh, But nowadays we don't have that anymore. You know, you can live a relatively comfortable, fine life and never really be challenged in that way. Um, 
but you also don't know what your potential is because you're never thrust out of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. You're never going to know what you're capable of until you get thrown into a sort of middle ground where you've got to figure your stuff out. Right. So the idea of Masogi is that I'm going to go out once a year. I'm going to pick something that has a truly high failure rate that I'm not sure if I can complete. And I'm going to try it because along the way, what tends to happen, and he's done things like one year, they got a group of guys and they carried an 85 pound boulder under the Santa Barbara channel. So one guy would dive like, you know, 10 feet down, pick up the rock, walk 10 yards, come back up for air. The boulder is, you know, five miles across the channel. They've also done things like pick a mountain far away. Let's see if we can get to the top of it. Uh, but it also doesn't have to be that hard. It's really the 50, 50 thing that's important. So I had a woman email me too, who was like 79 years old. She was going to do one of these. I'm pretty sure she's not going to be doing the boulder thing underwater, right? She's like, I'm going to walk five miles or whatever it is. So it's really where you're at. Um, but the idea is that if you've picked an appropriately hard task, you're going to hit a point where you think you cannot keep going, right? You've reached your edge. But if you are able to keep going, put one foot in front of the other, you're going to have a moment where you can look back and say, oh, you know, I thought my edge was back there, but I am clearly past it. So I've sold myself short here. And then that leads to the bigger question, which is if I've sold myself short here, where else in my life am I selling myself short? That's the point of it. The point is not to do the task, right? Mm -hmm. it, is a, it is a essentially psychological um, and even spiritual task that is masquerading as something physical that tells us something about our potential and in turn expands our comfort zone. Talk a little bit about your Masogi, the one you did in Alaska. That that was kind of what I liked about it is the way you couched that as the foundation of your book that you talked about these various principles uh, that, that came about during that time in Alaska. Yeah. So, I mean, through my work, I became friends with a guy whose name is Donnie Vincent, and he's this backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker, and he goes into the world's most you know remote areas and he'll spend a month or two up there hunting. And um, we became friends through some of my men's health work. And he and I had heard about this concept of Masogi um, from Marcus. And one day Donnie calls me up and he's like, I'm going to the Arctic for more than a month. Do you want to come along? And, you know, my initial reaction in my head was like, hell no. And you live in Vegas. So. And I live in Vegas. <laughs> in Vegas. There is not a single snowflake out here ever. Um, but he starts, Donnie starts selling it, right? He's like, it's going to be the most epic adventure you could ever go on. We're going to cross glacial rivers and ancient mountains. We're going to see grizzly bears and blah, 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 you know. And um, good sales pitch. And I'm like thinking, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. And I'm like, yeah, let's go. Uh, so I sign on. And, you know, I, I, I find out pretty soon when I start thinking about this, after I get out of like, you know, Donnie's salesman spell, I'm like, man, I'm underprepared for this, you know? Um, so I had to train a ton for it. And yeah, we, we go up to uh, what we, to get to uh, where we ended up, we had to take, I think five or six flights. So I go from Vegas to Seattle, to Anchorage, to this crappy little town up on the ocean called Kotzebue. Uh, and then we take these planes that are like the size of a Snickers bar out into the middle of the tundra. And um, they just land on the tundra and drop us off. And it's like, all right, see you in a month. 
uh, and we were hunting while we were up there. And I can definitely tell you that uh, I encountered a lot of discomfort. What was interesting about it is that you quickly realize how comfortable the world has become. I mean, it's easy, you know, you can kind of, I could kind of fathom it beforehand, but once you actually get out in there and it's like every single thing you have to do takes effort, you are starving the entire time. It is never the right temperature. Um, you are just, you know, even the ground, just walking on the ground is like, it's insane how, how hard it is to walk on the tundra mm -hmm. on and on and on. You quickly realize like, oh, wow, like, this is a totally different world. But what's interesting is that sort of lifestyle is what humans evolved in for all time, right? Um, all this stuff we have in our life now is like relatively new. And we are, we're, we're much more adapted to that lifestyle of hardship. And this is why it sort of backfires when you put us in this more comfortable world, because we still want to do the most comfortable thing in the comfortable world. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, well, one thing you, you, Rule number two, you uh, obeyed because you're here yeah. now. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is also I think it impacts resilience too. Resilience is such an important characteristic in business to be, to be able to fail and start up again and all that. And doing something like that where, you know, you, there's so many obstacles. You could die from a storm. You could die from a grizzly bear. You can, you know, uh, slip and fall in the snow on the mountains. There's so many different things. But, and, and the hardships that you went through, the fasting, the, the, you know, the uh, carrying all this weight and, you know, it, it makes you a lot more resilient and other things don't seem like a big deal anymore. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like when I got back, um, I mean, I like to kind of explain it this way is that, you know, as I'm flying up there, I'm on this plane, 747 from Vegas. And it's like, I hate flying, right? It's like, who, like flying sucks. Everyone knows that. Plane's too hot. Seats are cramped. Uh, the movies they play are always awful. Uh, snacks are terrible. Coffee's terrible. Bathroom's cramped. On and on and on. Right. But then it's like when I go out into the tundra, it's like it is always freezing. There isn't a screen within miles and miles. Like I'm bored out of my mind up there a lot of the time. We never have enough food. There isn't coffee. Uh, to, to go to, to the bathroom, it's like I got to walk out across the tundra with a rifle because there's grizzly bears. And then I got to like squat there. Like it's terrible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, when I get back on that plane to come back to Vegas, what do you think my experience is like? Oh my God. It's, it's like uh, when they first invented car windows that are automatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, it, it's the most amazing thing ever. It's like, I hadn't sat in a chair for more than a month. Mm -hmm. You know, that chair was heaven. The screen, the, the movies that I used to think were awful. I mean, I thought they were the greatest movies I'd ever seen. I didn't have to take a rifle to the bathroom, right? Mm -hmm. Hot water came out of the faucet at 30,000 feet. So it's kind of like this smack in the face to make you realize, oh man, like we have it really, really, really good now, mm -hmm. but we do not have the ability to see that and appreciate it unless we thrust ourselves into a world where we don't have that. And so mm -hmm. I think that then um, back to the resilience idea, it's like all of a sudden, I could sort of see that a lot of what I used to consider a problem isn't the problem at all. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, whatever, like this is, this is fine. And if you don't get flustered and uh, by things as much, uh, I think you can make better decisions in your life. Mm -hmm. And I'm not suggesting that everyone has to go up to Alaska for a month to get this. Not at all. I mean, I think that's where something like a Masogi comes in. That's mm -hmm. like a day long thing done at your level. Um, even things like more time outside, right? 
having to just pick these like specific discomforts I talk about in the book, I think can build that that will make people um, react to stress better, make better decisions in their business and just be happier overall. Yeah. And, and, you know, you talked a lot in the book about the physical things, you know, the benefits of fasting and, and, and uh, the rucking and, you know, just walking and carrying things. There's one I really wanted to drill into here, and that's dealing with boredom. Because in this today's world, it's almost impossible to be bored. You, you pick up your phone and all that. What are some of the benefits? What was your experience with boredom? And coming out of that experience, what benefits did you get from it? Yeah. So when, when we were up uh, hunting, I mean, I think some people, if you're not familiar with hunting, think it's like this action packed thing where you're like running through the woods. It's like, no, a lot of it is just like sitting there. Mm-hmm. Right? You're sitting because we're, we were hunting caribou and they're migrating. So you're just kind of waiting for them to come through mm-hmm. and didn't have my cell phone. I mean, my, I had my cell phone, but I, it didn't work. So it's like just kept it in you know the bag or whatever. Uh, but I didn't bring a book, a magazine, all that kind of stuff, right? So all of a sudden, I find myself bored again, you know? So, I mean, to deal with the boredom, it's like we would read the labels on our cliff bars and the, the tags on our jacket, right? Um, but when that became boring, it's like I came up with ideas for the magazines I write for. I wrote some of the book. I did all these different things. So when you look at why humans evolved to be bored, boredom isn't necessarily good or bad. Boredom simply tells us, go do something else. So if you think about, you know, uh, in the past, if we're hunting um, and no animals are coming through, boredom would kick on and essentially be like, go do something else. Because whatever you're doing with your time right now, it's, it's your, the return on your time invested has worn thin. So you get bored and maybe we'd go pick some berries or something else so we'd survive, right? So boredom often pushes us into something that is going to be more productive, something different, right? Uh, But today, when we're bored, when we feel that discomfort of boredom, we have so many easy, effortless escapes from it that are not necessarily productive. Like we pull out our cell phone more, right? We watch Netflix. You look at the the average person, they spend more than 12 hours on digital media, which is a lot of time. So boredom is effectively uh, dead, right? When we feel it's like, pull out my cell phone, right? Um, But we also know that going through um, periods of boredom has benefits. So it's great for increasing productivity and decreasing stress. And this basically comes from the fact that when um, you're focused on the outside world, like you would be on your cell phone, your brain is actually working relatively hard. Um, Whereas when you're spending time um, more inward, like mind wandering, which tends to first kick on when boredom happens, that's kind of a rest state, right? So having these periods of rest is associated with more productivity, less stress. Uh, Number two is it can increase creativity. So they do these really interesting uh, studies where they'll get one group and they'll let them do whatever they want to do. Usually they just hang out on their cell phone the whole time. They'll get another group and they will bore the heck out of them. And then they'll give them a creativity test. And the board group always outscores the non-board group. They come up with more answers and the answers are always more creative too. And, and then finally, it's like, you know, there's this William James quote where he says, uh, your life is effectively all the moments that you were aware of, right? So nowadays, 12 hours a day on media, I mean, it's essentially become our lives, <laughs> right? So I make the case in the book, um, 
you see a lot of arguments that, you know, you need to use your cell phone less, use your cell phone less. And that's great. I agree with that. Um, but the problem is that when people use their cell phone less and they have more free time, they're like, what the hell do I do with my time? So they watch, they go on their computer, they watch Netflix. Your brain doesn't know the difference, right? What your brain needs is these periods of bored downtime. So I make the argument, we need to start thinking more boredom. Um, and I do that. Uh, I recommend just go outside for a walk, like 20 minutes without your phone. Cause if you bring your phone, it's going to cancel everything out. Just, just an aimless walk. Well, as a fellow journalist, um, I experienced that myself when let's say I'm working on an article, I'll do my interviews, gather my notes, I'll read my notes and then I'll go out and walk for a while. And then I'll come back. And, and when I go out, I'm not paying attention to anything in particular, just wandering. And, mm-hmm. and then I come back and things start stitching themselves together. And then I, maybe I'll write a first draft. Then I'll do the same thing. Then I'll come back and I find, again, ideas pop into my head, things that would actually help move the story forward. And so I've started really incorporating that. Uh, I think it's called the default mode network, uh, where your brain is just kind of actively inactive. Yeah. And, and shooting ideas around in the back of your skull. And, and, uh, and, and it always works. It's something always comes out of it. It's uh, almost like when you go sleep on something. Yeah. And then the next day you're shaving and then an idea pops into your head. Yeah, that's why people, you know, there's the cliche of like, I have my best ideas in the shower. Mm-hmm. It's because you're not, there's, you, you can't do anything. Yeah. Right? You're just sitting there and you're, you're mind wandering. You're just aimlessly mind wandering and just stuff pops in there that's productive. So nowadays we have and people now listen to podcasts in the shower which is like canceling that out now you know so we just need those moments where it's like totally unstimulated let your brain go where it needs to go and the challenge for a lot of entrepreneurs is that they feel if they're not actively doing something every minute of the day they're wasting time but they don't realize that embracing this boredom is an activity that they could do that will help them Yeah. I mean, I had a neuroscientist explain it to me like this. It's like, look, you can, people tell her that they're like, we can't, I can't take this time out because I need to make, I need to hit my quota of like 20 widgets or whatever they're doing. Right. But if you're trying to power, power out 20 minutes or 20 widgets in this burnout mode, if you just take 20 minutes throughout that day, you actually might be able to make say 21 widgets and they're also going to be more creatively made, Mm -hmm. right? Because you've had this time where you can collect and instead of trying to just crank through, um, you're going to actually be able to make more and the stuff that you do make is going to be more interesting. Hmm. That's a great analogy. So what are some ways that uh, we can introduce discomfort back into our lives that will help us? Some, Some easy ways for maybe somebody who's, let's say a low level, of uh, discomfort tolerance right now. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think the idea of Masogi is really great. Um, It's just 50, 50. So my 50% is different than yours is different than yours is different than yours. Um, My mom's done one. She's 72 years old. You know Um, I also think that include figuring out ways to weave boredom back into your life. As I just said, I think walking is great because it also gets you outside. And in the book, I talk about all the crazy benefits of different levels and times and types of nature and what they do to the brain. Um, I think, I think that reintroducing even hunger into your life can be a good one. Like I found out there that I was hungry again. Like I'm, I'd rarely had these extended period periods of physiological hunger, right? Nowadays we often eat because it's a clock tells us to, or because it's lunchtime or dinner time or we're stressed or whatever. 
So I think that can be good. Um, I also go talk at length in the book about the benefits of rucking as an exercise. And that's really simple. It's, um, I kind of explained it as lifting for people who hate the gym and cardio for people who hate to run. So it's just carrying a weighted pack and you can do that on any, like any normal walk. If you're going to walk the dog, throw a rock on, cause you'll get a lot of, uh, strength benefits in addition to the, the cardio benefits. And we know you need both all the research around health suggests you need both. Uh, I think having periods of silence too, can be really important. People today feel uncomfortable in silence, but it's also really good for um, decreasing stress, mm-hmm. right? Um, and on and on. I mean, I talk about a ton of these different things in the book. Well, I, you converted me to a rucker. I mean, like I said, you know, this is my, I think my, my seventh thing that I've gotten from them, right? A uh, uh, backpack, a uh, plate carrier, three plates, two uh, sets of ballistic trainers. I rock every day. Uh, every evening. So I'll have my workouts in the morning, but every evening like clockwork, I will go and I'll rock to a park, through a park and back from the park. And it's just, it's made all the difference. I mean, health wise, uh, energy wise, I have so much more energy. And also when I'm doing that, I'm also incorporating the silence, you know, and not looking at my phone. And it's really made a, made a big difference. So last question, what's your next plan, Masogi? Do you have one on the books yet? Uh, I don't, I usually do one in the spring. I haven't figured out what, what, uh, the 2022 Misogi is going to be yet, but I'm thinking it might be something in the water because I think one thing that is important about these is facing your fears. And I live in the desert for a reason. I'm not a big water guy. Um, so I might have to incorporate that in some capacity. Excellent. Well, thank you again. Thank you for the book. Uh, everybody again, it's the comfort crisis. Uh, highly recommend it. It's been a game changer for me. And uh, again, thank you. I will keep following you and, and uh, check out your, your next Misogi when it comes up. Yeah, sounds good. It was great to chat with you, Joe. Likewise. Take care.